0: That was take two. I actually mangled the whole thing (laughs) earlier. And I'm Doug Cunnington. I have a special co-host guest today.
1: Hi, guys. My name is Carla Cash. I've been here a couple times before. um, And I'm really excited to dig into today's topic. So I guess I should say who I am. Uh, We have a podcast, my husband and I, called Pennies and Popcorn, um which is also fun but yeah we're part of the Mile High Five family so to speak and excited to do a little guest spot here today and take Carl's spot for the for a couple episodes um
0: yeah and Carl is um i think he's he's not sick this time i think he's at a beach doing something awesome he was uh he was supposed to be here but he called me and he was like i can't show up so i just i was like <laughs> carla i need your help and you you had a wonderful idea for a topic. So I'll let you talk about it a little bit and intro it, and then we'll get into some of the details.
1: Yeah, so there was a book that came out in 2018 by a guy named David Graber called, language warning, Bullshit Jobs. Um, I read it a couple years ago, so my memory on it is a little bit fuzzy, but it really resonated with me. And I think it resonated with a lot, a lot of people. So it started as... Just this little kernel of an idea that like, hey, most jobs are actually total bullshit. And he wrote this essay on it, I don't know, probably in like 2015 or so, a few years before the book came out. And the essay kind of went viral and all these people started responding to him and they were like, hey, my job's bullshit and my job's bullshit. So he decided like, I'm really onto something here. I think a lot of people feel this way and ended up writing the book about it. So it's a fascinating topic. And I'm excited to dig into a little little bit today and talk about whether you and I have had any bullshit jobs.
0: So. Awesome. And did you read the book when it first came out? When did it get on your radar?
1: Um, it was on my radar pretty soon. I think I read it like a couple years ago, probably in like 2020.
0: Okay. So you had already quit your job and went yeah. on the sabbatical and everything.
1: Yeah. We did that in 2019, pulled the plug on our careers. So I am still a lawyer, but Barely. I I just practice a little bit here and there for fun. Um, but yeah, pulled the the plug on my big um, career as a litigation attorney. So that was quite a quite a switch.
0: And I'm I'm probably gonna I, I didn't read the book, so it's great to have someone who hasn't read the book in a while and then a person that didn't read the book at all. But we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna talk about the concepts. I watched a YouTube video on this topic though, so there I'm, you go. I'm vaguely familiar with it. But Why did you pick up the book after you escaped your corporate drudgery?
1: I think it's kind of validating to hear that a lot of other people have had similar experiences and to see it sort of in black and white, like, laid out, these are the categories of bullshit jobs, which we're going to go through the categories today um, and, like, see kind of where you fit in that uh, hierarchy. And, yeah, it just – I have – often felt that a lot of jobs are not necessary. So to hear somebody like echoing that back and, you know, telling all these interesting stories of people who are coming out of the woodwork, like, hey, this is my experience too, was very intriguing to me. Yeah, it's it's a fun read. I recommend it.
0: And I'll, yeah, I'll probably check out that audio book and uh, maybe I'll be better informed. But wh- what do you think? Should we go through the different types of jobs or did you have a different approach to highlight?
1: Things. Yeah, no, I think we should just kind of walk through the five categories of bullshit jobs and um sort of offer our thoughts on them whether we've seen them in real life or not. So the first category is a flunky. That's his his word for it, but basically somebody whose whole position is to like make somebody else feel better about their position or their existence really. So the examples that he gives for this are people like Receptionists, doormen, some administrative assistants. Um, I think even like some PR people who are basically just there to like make you feel fond over and adored. Um, so those are the examples that I can remember off the top of my head, um, which I do think not everything that he lists as an example of a bullshit job, I feel like is truly bullshit. So, like, administrative assistants is a good one. I had an administrative assistant as an attorney. And good Lord, I could not have like tied my shoes without her. She was so extraordinarily helpful. I will say, however, that she was maybe a little bit, I mean, she was exceptional in so many ways. And there were other administrative assistants who I think were just kind of like playing a lot of solitaire on their computers (laughs) and like didn't really have that much to do. Um, The reason that ours was so great is she was like super involved and She knew what was going on with all of the cases. She was practically a lawyer. Like, she was so up on everything that was happening in the office and just, like, genuinely the office would fall apart without her. Um, But, yeah, I definitely have seen some administrative assistants who are just, like, kind of passing the time and they're there to do little things here and there, but probably you know, the, whoever's like above that assistant could end up doing those things themselves.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think even before we get into it, that was a good way to cover. So we don't condemn people with those specific jobs. (laughs) Probably a lot of jobs have components of all, like all of these. And yeah, I mean, the, the book's called bullshit jobs. So each one of the descriptors of the, I guess the archetype of this job. Yeah. They are uh, negative. They're ge- they're generally negative. <laughs> yes. So keep that in mind and, and we're, we're going to talk about the bullshit jobs that we've had and our yeah.
1: how
0: how we fit into it really well, but yeah. I, yeah. So we're not saying if you're uh, an executive assistant that you have a bullshit job.
1: Yeah, for sure. So. For sure.
0: Okay, cool. What's next?
1: So next on the list is goons. And this one hurts my heart a little bit because I'm pretty sure that I fell into this category at least a non zero percent of the time. So, goons are his word for people who like actually do harm to the world, <laughs> people whose role is to kind of antagonize, either harm people, deceive people, do something that's like actually harmful to society. So, corporate lawyers are. One of the examples that he gives in his list of goons, Um, he's also got lobbyists, which I think is pretty spot on. I suppose you could be lobbying for like a really awesome thing, but a lot of lobbyists are not doing that. Um, Telemarketers, that's pretty hard to argue with. Yeah, I suppose maybe somebody could call you offering to sell you a product that's like actually going to change your life. But I've never gotten that telemarketing call. Have you, Doug?
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no, I did just get um extended warranty for my truck though, so that okay. that I think that's helpful,
1: okay, okay <laughs> <laughs> um, he talks about like p r specialists as well, public relations, um which I don't think is total bullshit. I can see a lot of p r stuff really being helpful um but yeah, those are the ones that uh, I think are like common examples of goons. So, yeah. So the, the phrase corporate lawyer, I think, gets thrown around a lot. And if you're actually in the legal world, that means something pretty specific, which is that usually you're working on like mergers and acquisitions. That's the most typical thing for a corporate lawyer to do. Um, but I think a lot of people use it to just mean any lawyer who works for big corporations, which would lump me into that category, um, so yeah, what I was doing was a lot of litigation, one company fighting another company, and sometimes the issues that we were fighting over were kind of silly. And we, you know, people are spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars on legal fees to fight this issue that the world would probably be better off if you know they just conceded and said, "Yeah, you're right." Um, so yeah, I feel like I've been a little bit of a goon in my my prior prior life.
0: So what what would what's the better descriptor for the type of lawyer that you are or were?
1: So I would call myself a, a litigation attorney, a litigator. Okay. Um yeah, that's the more accurate term for what I did, but I did represent big corporations, so mm. it's not totally wrong to call me a corporate lawyer, but yeah, it within the legal universe, corporate means like typically you're helping with M and A's, mergers and acquisitions, or the reverse, like tearing companies down, mm. um, turning them into subsidiaries. It's it's kind of like the structuring of companies is what I think of as corporate law. I never practiced in the corporate section, um, but that's kind of my like outsider's sure. view of what they did.
0: Got it. Well, as you know most of us are not in the legal profession. It all looks the same to us. Yeah. So, but good to hear the distinction. Yeah. All right, next, and I'll I'll take this one as duct tapers duct tapers, just to be clear. (laughs) Um, And they temporarily fix problems that could be fixed permanently. These are like programmers repairing bloated code, airline desk staff who calm passengers whose bags don't arrive. That's a funny one. Yeah. Have you had any lost bags uh, in your years of travel?
1: Oh man, I feel like I need some wood to knock on because I don't think I ever have. Yeah, Yeah, I can't remember ever losing a bag. I've been with someone who lost a bag, but mine was always miraculously there. Um, Yeah, it's no fun. I mean, people get really stressed out, but it does seem kind of odd to have someone whose whole existence is just to calm you down when you're in a stressful situation. Uh, Yeah. yeah, I mean, that person would probably be better reallocated to making sure that the bags don't get lost in the first place, right? Like improving that system. Obviously, mistakes are going to happen from time to time, but.
0: Yeah. And I. I also, luckily, I haven't lost lost a bag. I've had some delays uh, change my flights or where my bag was going and that got all mixed up. So, sometimes a bag showed up late or something like that, but yeah. it never went fully missing, which is, you know, kind of lucky. It's never lost thing. all that stuff. Yeah. Um, were there any other examples for this type of uh, duct taper or just kind of a?
1: Not that I can remember, but yeah, I think it's just generally people who are like continually fixing things in a temporary way, as opposed to just like fixing it in a truly permanent way. So like the bloated code thing that they're talking about here, it's just like this huge unwieldy program that's been written. And instead of streamlining it and making it better, they just like constantly are making little tweaks here and there. So yeah, I think that's... um, something that probably a lot of folks can relate to. Like I just keep putting band-aids on things when we really could be starting from the top down and doing better.
0: I have an example. So we, we bought this house new. So there was a one year warranty. The warranty manager was pretty much that. So he was like, fielding the issues, trying to come to a resolution, probably the worst job ever, right? Because people only contact him when, well, it's like the lost bag. We only get in touch with him when something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, kind of like an insurance company too. Like his job is to, or I felt like his job was to not not deliver any money or anything, (laughs) like just do the least possible. Yeah. And I mean, I felt bad for him. He was actually a nice, nice guy Mm -hmm. overall, but I mean- after the fifth thing that you call in for, it's like, come on, can we just fix yeah. this finally? Yeah.
1: So. Oh, that's that's such a good example. I've, I'm sure that there are a lot of people whose loyalties are like torn like that, right? Like you've got a customer coming in, you want to be able to do something to help them, but also you've got, you know, the corporate overlords behind you telling you like, eh, don't give them too much, right? So you're, that's probably a really unpleasant position to be in.
0: Yep. All right, what's next?
1: So next up we have box tickers. This is kind of an interesting one. I don't think I've ever encountered too many box tickers or maybe I just didn't know about it, but basically people who are there to like create the appearance that something good is being done, but actually they're not doing much of anything. So I guess my um, example of this, I don't think this is on his list, but um, TSA, right, airport security, We've watched a couple of uh, interesting YouTube videos about uh, security theater, which um, was a phrase that I didn't know before. But basically, it's like we're just putting on an act to make it seem as though things are being done to protect you. But really, like a lot of stuff is getting through and they're not being super thorough. They're just kind of they're checking the box. Right. So I think TSA is my favorite example of box stickers. Um, He also lists. Uh, survey administrators, which is kind of an interesting one to me. I I feel like surveys can often be really, really helpful, right? Maybe there's a difference between surveying and polling, but if there is, I don't know what it would be. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think polling can be really helpful, gives people a lot of useful data. Um, But I think the ones that resonate with me more with his examples are like corporate compliance officers and quality service workers, right? People who are walking around trying to like inspect things and make sure that everything is in order. Um, when really like if you can rely on your employees and everyone's working hard, you shouldn't need somebody like that. Right.
0: Mm -hmm. And quick, quick note on the TSA. We, uh, we went on a trip to San Diego and we, we checked a bag, which we rarely do, but we were like, we're going long enough. And I, I have a pocket knife that I, keep with me most of the time and I usually don't bring it on trips because you can't fly with a knife. I forgot to put it in the bag that we checked and I only remembered right when we were going to the security line. So I was Uh, like, oh shit. (laughs) I hid it in my bag under some electronic stuff and went through TSA with a knife. It's not big. It's just a small like, you know, little pocket knife, just maybe two, three inches long.
1: Yeah. I have also done things that are against the TSA rules. Most frequently- um, I often have like some sort of chapstick or like lip balm in my pocket and I'll forget about it. And then I'll go through security and be like, well, they didn't notice. <laughs> so um, yeah, there's been a handful of things like that, especially the chapstick that <laughs> they never ever catch. Yeah. So the phrase security theater just feels like beautifully on point to me. I can't, Yeah. Couldn't come up with a better phrase for that. So,
0: smuggling chapstick through, take a plane down with that, right? Quite the rebel. (laughs) Quite
1: the rebel. Uh, So, finally, taskmasters. And this one is, I feel like, very pervasive and common. So, basically, this is referring to kind of like middle management, anybody who exists just to like create work for other people and not actually do anything themselves. Um, I do think there's there's obviously value in oversight, right? It's good to have people checking in. I'm really glad that we have like the food and drug administration in this country like checking in on the quality of products and stuff. Um so I don't think oversight in general is a bad thing. I think it's it's probably quite good. But I think it just can be taken to an extreme where it becomes um just like overkill, unnecessary and it's Middle management kind of stuff is probably in that same vein like you can just have too many people in those roles that they end up making more work instead of actually helping to get work done yep
0: very good and then the other note i I'm not sure if you mentioned it so it's middle management and leadership professionals yeah so that all that's interesting,
1: yeah, I'm not really sure what he means by leadership professionals. I don't remember him talking about that in the book. I wonder if that's like like motivational speakers who go around to corporations and like try to get people pumped up. Or maybe he's just talking about like leadership in general, like the C-suite, right?
0: I think I took, I take it more. Yeah. Like middle management, maybe a little above that, uh, specifically project managers, some of those admin types, which will come into play in a second.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, okay. So that's like the broad, those are the five types. So you got flunkies, goons, duct tapers, box tickers, and task masters. So any other broad ideas before we get into some of our specifics here?
1: Oh, I think we should dig into our own experiences with these.
0: Okay. So have you had a BS job?
1: I, yes, I have definitely been the goon for sure. Um, I think maybe I've also been a little bit of a box ticker because we would have, um, Sometimes our clients would come to us and they would want an opinion on, like, some action that they wanted to take. Um, So, like, in the insurance context, it was often, can we deny this claim? Give us an opinion on it. And we would spend, you know, weeks, like, researching case law and trying to analyze it and give them an answer on whether they could or couldn't deny a claim. Um, And you spend a lot of time, like, you know, drafting this lengthy legal opinion polishing it making sure it's in really really good shape and ultimately it seemed like our our opinion was often not that necessary like we kind of knew up front what it was going to be before we spent weeks and weeks doing the research not every time sometimes there was some surprising case law out there that would support going a direction that was different from your instincts but a lot of the time it just felt like spending tons and tons of hours preparing these things that are just going to end up in a drawer somewhere and somebody's going to like flip through it and be like, okay, they said, yes, we're going to do it. You know, <laughs> So that feels like a box ticking thing for sure. What about you? Have you had a BS job?
0: Yes, I think so. My, my previous, uh, corporate career. So I did a lot of project management. So that's why I mentioned that project management for professional. And it was under like Management consulting area. So often, I worked on you know multiple, especially earlier in my career, I worked on multiple projects per year. So there was a great opportunity to do each one of these things <laughs> in the different roles. And you would do you know different stuff. So the variety was kind of interesting. You learn different things. But yeah, as as we went through here, I'm like, ah, oh, you know what? Yeah, there was a piece of a job that did this or that, and you know, I, some of them. Are very sp- specific, almost verbatim. So, like the task master, master, I have trouble saying each one of these. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. It's, it's some like, there hard are unusual, consonants.
1: Yeah, unusual words too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, like the middle management, which is a great place to be if you want to coast and you're not too ambitious. Like once you get in there, there's fewer positions to move up. Yeah. So, it's harder to do it. And it takes longer. So, if you can cruise in there and you're not too ambitious, it's a great place to mm-hmm. be. And yeah, literally, you, you're you creating like a little extra work. And I was like in the like sort of lower leadership area. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of things you could delegate and, you know, create that extra work for people that don't need it. Mm. And one of the things I did towards the end was I spin it as something positive but I delegated almost all the work that I could be doing Mm -hmm. to my team. And it seems like it's very self-centered, which, I mean, there were great benefits (laughs) to that. However, if anyone wants to get promoted, they have to do like the next job up. So they needed to do that work and they wanted to do it. And I, you know, I didn't give those tasks to people that didn't want it, but they were able to like go to their, um, uh, superior and then ask, uh, to be promoted or get a raise because they were performing above their level. Mm -hmm. So that's how I, that's how I spin that whole thing. (laughs) Uh, unfortunately it makes it really easy to lay you off. If you're like, I'm not doing anything. My whole, my whole team is doing it. So the, the other one, like the goons, I didn't think that I had that, you know, specific role, but there were definitely roles that I had where we're up against, uh, other competing vendors for example or just other teams even internally where you do have to politic and basically um not not deceive that's in the definition i, I never deceived but it, it was like you're making your case to do something and it's going to harm the other um mm-hmm. the other company or the other party yeah. involved Interesting. so but that was that was exactly what you we were supposed to do, and then the the other one again verbatim. Actually, you know, have some software experience and you know re- repair code, just put patches on things, mm. move on, get it good enough. Like other people can deal with it later.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is a really interesting question, I think, because one of the things he did talk about in the book that I remember was the psychology of having a job where. You either know that what you're doing is not helpful at all, or I think that even more interestingly, you're in a position where you genuinely don't have to do anything. So like, I think a good example of this would be a receptionist, right? Probably like 80% of your time, at least there's nobody coming in and out the door that you have to be sort of policing. So you're literally just sitting there at the desk waiting for someone to come And then you can be like, hello, welcome to, you know, Gibson and Dunn Law Firm or whatever it is. I just made that up. Um, But yeah, that leaves you with a ton of downtime. And some people really think that that's a dream, right? To be able to just sit there, you can like read, you can surf the internet, you can play solitaire. I guess that's probably outdated. Nobody plays solitaire (laughs) anymore. But, you know, you can just, like, fart around, basically. And to some people, that's the best thing ever, that you're you're getting paid to just, like, sit around and do nothing. For other people, it is torture. They just feel like they want to be doing something beneficial to the world. They feel wasted. They feel frustrated. They feel trapped. So which category do you think you fall into?
0: Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I love the free time. And I would actually go to certain positions where maybe there were inefficiencies and then I would make it efficient, but I wouldn't tell anyone about it. (laughs) So then I would have like a lot of free time and I've mentioned it in a a show previously, but basically I would maybe, yeah, get a task, uh, some spreadsheet work and then automate it. And then it takes 15 minutes instead of four hours, which is great. And I have another story I want to tell, but yeah, have you like, where, where do you fall in that?
1: I think I'm more towards the other end of the spectrum where it's really, really frustrating. And I I know this about myself because I was kind of in that situation. When I first started practicing law, um, I graduated from law school in 2008, which was like right at the heart of the recession, right? And when I started um, my first firm job, we were so painfully slow. It was terrible, just terrible. We had so little to do. And of course you have this added pressure because there's like a certain number of hours you're supposed to bill every year. And basically the associates were just like popping into each other's offices being like, how are you doing on your hours? Do you have any work to do? What are we going to do today? (laughs) Like it was, we were all just panicked about getting our hours. And it was terrifying and frustrating. And I was just like itching to do something. Um, I did a lot of box ticking at that particular (laughs) job because when like people were the the partners were hurting too, right? So they were trying to come up first for they were trying to come up with stuff for us to do, and they would come up with just like kind of well, maybe the company will appreciate it if we do this or spend a little more time on that opinion that you're working on, you know, so there was a lot of that going on, and I really strongly disliked it. It was not for me, gotcha, yeah, so yeah, what, what is your story that you have?
0: So there's two parts. I left the first company that I worked for and I I like planned vacation. So I actually got like some good time off, but then I started at the next company and in the consulting world, if you're not on a project, you're quote on the bench. Sometimes you could do some internal work, but sometimes there's not internal work to do. Uh-huh. So for the first, no joke, three months. I didn't do shit. I didn't even go into the <laughs> office. I worked on my house. So yeah. it, it took a couple of weeks, uh, you know, I'm like, where do I need to go? Like what needs to happen? And they're like, ah, you know, there's nothing to do. Like if you want to go in and mill about the office and see if someone can give you some work, you can do that. But you know, that's not very fruitful. So and it was like 30 miles away. So it's like, I'm not doing that. So yeah, three months. And then finally I got put on a project and it was insane. there was essentially no no supervision over me um but there were also very little tasks so yeah. there was virtu- there were a couple of meetings that I could like manage, but it wasn't it was maybe like an hour of work per day and it was uh I had to travel to Kansas, so I went to Overland Park and they had a beautiful it was at a sprint campus, so it was a beautiful campus. And there was uh nothing to do. I would work like six hours a day, um four days a week. I had no other peers or coworkers. Oh, wow. The hotel that I stayed at was next door to like a uh, Bally's Fitness. You remember okay. those? Yeah, yeah. And I had free access to that because of oh. the hotel. So I would like work for a few hours. I would go in late. And I mean, like there was nothing else to do. I was trying to get more work, but I just resigned to, um, well, I could work out for like two hours in the afternoon, um, get a nice per diem and have dinner and have some nice, you know, Kansas beers out there. So (laughs) yeah, I, I, I think if you could find one of those jobs and you're psychologically able to handle it, like you can have fun. And at the time I was, I was uh, learning about homebrewing beer. So I was listening to podcasts like crazy and trying to study. beer Beer.
1: yeah i think they those jobs can be golden opportunities right like you can take that time to do things for yourself right you could sit there and write a novel or you could sit there and like learn the history of the roman empire right like whatever you wanted to do you could you could use that time productively i think a lot of people end up feeling like they're not supposed to be using that time for personal projects and so instead they just end up like kind of fiddling around surfing the internet wasting those hours so i think that's probably a big part of why a lot of folks don't feel good about it there's sort of like this push and pull like i'm supposed to be doing something for the company but i can't but i don't feel like i should work on my personal projects so i'm just gonna mess around so
0: it's tough yeah and i think you know part of my attitude is i like rejected the job and the, like the mission. I was like, what am I doing here? I may as well just try to make myself happy. So, well, do you think most jobs are BS jobs or what?
1: I don't think most jobs are. So I think David Graeber, the author has come out and said that like a solid 50% of jobs are BS. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I kind of hope that it's not true. Right. Otherwise a heck of a lot of people are out there grinding away for no good reason. Um, but I do think it's, you know, it's not nothing. There's a lot of folks out there who I've talked to who felt this way, but um, there's a lot of really valuable things that people do as well. So, yeah. I don't know. I my guess would be it's somewhere in like the twenty ish, twenty percent ish range. Range. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's. I mean, there's a lot of different jobs and industries out there. So, yeah, I bet it's you know kind of high in the maybe IT and um, high tech industry. Like that's just yeah. what I'm most familiar with. Yeah. Um, and it seems like there was a lot of waste in in my area.
1: Anyway. Yeah, I do think there tends to be a correlation with the higher your salary, the more bullshitty your job is going to be, <laughs> um, which is not true across the board. I, like doctors would be an obvious exception to that, but um, yeah, it and I actually I think you did talk about this in the book, and that there there was some comment about basically like the really high paid. Highly paid people feel like the lower paid people should be happy with their lot in life because they actually get to do something, right? Like they're actually making something or, you know, like actually helping human beings with some genuine problem that they have. And the higher earners feel like we got to at least get paid well if we're going to sit around like making the world worse every day. So I don't know if that's actually true, but uh, that correlation does tend to – to be there in my experience.
0: And you had a couple other good questions. What's the least BS job you can think of?
1: I think probably it's gotta be building or making something that's either brings people a lot of joy like these beautiful guitars that I see sitting in front of me, Um, somebody had to make those, right? And now you own them and they bring you a lot of happiness. Um, This house that we're sitting in, right? Houses are a wonderful thing to build. Um, teachers i think are pretty pretty solid in the no bs category helping to you know mold young minds um there's a lot of really really helpful jobs out there i think what about you do you have any good examples
0: yeah i mean you you had great examples there and i well i was going to say i think of my parents so they did public service kind of stuff so my dad was a firefighter oh yeah and my mom was a nurse and i think you know anything in the public service area is good. That said, I know there's a lot of, you know, kind of quote BS pieces of really any industry. There's uh, bureaucracy and overhead and just like stuff where you do have to tick the boxes and, mm-hmm. you know, that's just the reality. So even if it's a, a good job, the other one, the other big one, I think is um, just the service and hospitality industry mm. where it's like, you know, It's very clear, like you're you're getting, they're they're serving, they're helping people, and it makes sense to me. And I think those are very underappreciated jobs.
1: Yeah. No, I think those are great examples. Yeah. Anything anything where you're actually helping somebody to solve a problem or you're making something that's going to fill a need or fulfill a want, like a deep want, I think that's pretty spectacular if you can do that with your life.
0: And then this one's a fun one. What's the most BS job you can think of?
1: (laughs) Uh, Gosh, it probably, I mean, it's hard not to rely on my own experience of being a lawyer and doing something that you know is just not valuable. But I, I will say, I don't think being a lawyer is a BS job across the board at all. Sometimes lawyers do really fabulous things. I'm practicing immigration law right now That feels really, really rewarding when we're able to help somebody, you know, help like get legal status in the United States. And you know that that's going to last for generations to come. And that's very rewarding. But even litigators, I mean, I'm really happy. Like If I go to a theme park and I get on a roller coaster, I'm happy to know that there are lawyers in the world because the theme park designers know that there are lawyers in the world, right? And they're probably going to build me a safer roller coaster because they don't want to get sued. So it's an important thing to have that like check on society to know that there are people who will stand up for those who have been injured if some wrong has been done. And it can be really really important and valuable. It's just that, you know, like everything it can be kind of warped and used for for ill-gotten gains as well. So it's it's all a balance. I think almost any job you could do it in a super ethical way and a helpful way and you could also you know do it terribly as well yeah so
0: yeah what do and, you think yeah like you it's easiest for me to lean on the the job that i did before so probably the management consulting area and anything related to that and just like you said there are certain certain pieces where like a company can get a ton of value from expert advice and like implementation services and all that kind of stuff But then there's a ton of waste and I mean, I I don't know how you would get rid of it when you get, you know, a huge company that's hundreds of thousands of people and so many layers of management and stuff. Like there's going to be a lot of waste versus like a boutique consulting firm that has like four people and like people are executing. There's clear, there's clearly value and maybe they're working with like smaller companies or something like that. But yeah, there's a lot of BS jobs out there.
1: Yeah. Our hearts go out to anybody who feels like they have a BS job because it's it's a tough spot to be in.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. So I think that uh, covers it for this. And if anyone read the book, uh, shoot us an email. Uh, you could actually subscribe to the email list and hit reply to that. That's probably the easiest way to do it. I forget what our email address is, but, uh, <laughs> Carla, do you have any favorite recent shows from your podcast that you want to plug here?
1: Oh yeah. So we just put out an episode on Mary Poppins, which is super fun. We had a blast recording that episode. Um, so in case I didn't say this before I, our episode, our show is about real money lessons from TV and movies. And Mary Poppins has a surprising number of money lessons in it, like balancing giving to charity with investing for yourself, balancing like joy and living for today versus investing for the future. Um, We got into all kinds of nitty gritty details. So it was super, super fun. That one's going to be a fun one to check out.
0: Awesome. We'll link up to that so people can get to it. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks, Carla.
1: Yeah. See you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person. So the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using. And that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch you all next week.